From NBC5 and the Dallas Morning News, this is the Lone Star Politics Podcast. I'm Chris Blake. The Texas legislature's second special session of the summer ended Thursday, with Republicans passing many of the items on Governor Greg Abbott's list of priorities, including bills impacting elections, abortion, and what can be taught in Texas classrooms. Plus, the U.S. finished its withdrawal from Afghanistan, and we check in on the latest on mask requirements in public schools. Julie Fine and Gromer Jeffers this week are joined by State Senator Brian Hughes, Congressman Mark Vesey, and Attorney David Cole. Before we dive in, please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe to the Lone Star Politics Podcast. It helps us grow the show and helps others find it. State Senator Brian Hughes, a Republican from Mineola, was one of the authors of Senate Bills 1 and 8. The former is the Elections Bill, which adds ID requirements, puts limits on mail voting and drop boxes, and adds new controls over local elections officials. Republicans say the law is meant to restore confidence in the system. Democrats say it will suppress the vote. There was no evidence of widespread voter fraud in the 2020 election. Senate Bill 8 is the abortion law that took effect Wednesday in Texas. It is the most restrictive law against abortion since the Supreme Court ruled on Roe v. Wade in 1973. On Thursday, the Supreme Court ruled 5-4 to allow the law to stand on procedural grounds. Chief Justice John Roberts sided with the three liberal justices in the minority opinion. Here is Senator Hughes with Julian Grummer. Let's bring in the author of Senate Bill 8, Republican State Senator Brian Hughes of Mineola. Thanks so much for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. Let's start with the reason why you filed Senate Bill 8. Well, that heartbeat is the universal sign of life. We're often told to follow the science. I think we all understand this. Think about your earliest memories of your mother's heartbeat. Think about that loved one in the hospital and that heart monitor. You know, if you have a pulse, you have a heartbeat. That means you're alive. And so this bill says, when there's a fetal heartbeat, that heartbeat's detected, that little unborn baby growing inside her mother's womb, that little baby is the most innocent, the most helpless, and the most worthy of protection a human will ever be. And so it makes sense for us to protect that little human life. That's really what this bill's about. President Biden criticized the bill saying, quote, the Texas law will significantly impair women's access to the health care they need, particularly for communities of color and individuals with low incomes. How do you respond to that? I'm glad you mentioned that because we want to make sure we talk about the mothers in these cases. This often doesn't get through in pro-life discussions. In Texas, we've increased funding every year, double funding, in fact, for the Alternatives to Abortion program. And Y'all are familiar with that. It uses state tax dollars and federal money to help mothers who are having difficult situations, unplanned pregnancies, uh, facing a lot of tough choices. And it helps those mothers with tangible help while they're carrying the child and after the child comes to term. So not just encouragement, but physical help, monetary help, parenting classes, diapers, baby formula, things that those mothers need in those situations. We can protect that innocent human life inside the womb and also come alongside that mother and love her and support her. And we can do both. They are not competing ends. This law makes exceptions uh, for cases in terms of the health of the mother, but not yes. rape or incest, Senator. What do you say to someone who has had an abusive experience and wants to terminate the pregnancy? There's no way that I could imagine a situation like that. We've talked to, to folks who are uh, victims of rape, also uh, met some people who themselves were conceived in rape, horrible, difficult situations. So what do we do with that difficult situation? It wouldn't make sense for us to punish that little unborn baby. Let's punish that rapist. Let's hold them accountable. Let's throw the book at them to the fullest extent of the law. Let's punish the rapist. 
but don't punish the little unborn baby. That wouldn't make any sense at all. What about the woman, though, that wants to terminate the pregnancy because that had been such a difficult experience for her? What do you say to her? Yeah, we've heard from women in those situations, and I can't imagine what that would be like. We've heard from a lot of, a lot of women who've had to deal with that. And again, it's a difficult situation. There is a, there's going to be a hard decisions to make. Again, we're already, we already have a, a tough thing that's happened, a horrible thing with a rape. Why would we compound that by taking the life of the little unborn child? That wouldn't make any sense at all. Are you worried that the provision in the law that allows Texans to bring a lawsuit against abortion providers and people who they believe assisted someone in getting an abortion after six weeks will create confusion and chaos in the legal system? Well, let's say a couple things about that. And the law doesn't say six weeks. He says after the fetal heartbeat is detected. So an abortion doctor is required to check for a heartbeat. And if he hears one, he can't go forward with it. As far as the enforcement goes, you may have seen in late 2020, a number of district attorneys around the country, including Dallas and a number in Texas, stated publicly that we will not enforce a heartbeat bill. You can pass one if you want to, legislature, but we, the district attorneys, in certain urban counties will not enforce it. So when the sworn district attorney supposed to uphold the law says, I'm not gonna enforce the law, what choice do we have? Citizen enforcement is nothing new in Medicaid fraud. We've had this for years where any Texan can bring a claim. Uh, we did the same thing with religious freedom in Senate Bill 1978 last session. So this is nothing new. This is about private citizens having the ability to enforce the law. Senator, this is such an emotional issue though. Are you worried about vigilante justice and, and mistakes being made and, and, and that sort of thing. Is this the type of bill where you should have that sort of mechanism attached to it? Oh, it's such an emotional issue and, and we want to tread lightly when we, when we deal with these issues. Of course, it's emotional. Again, we're talking about protecting innocent human life. Hard to imagine anything more important than that. And again, we have good judges in Texas. We have a good court system with rules in place to handle cases like this. Turning now to Senate Bill 1, the elections bill, which you also authored, you believe it's about securing the vote and preventing fraud. Many of your Democratic colleagues who are now hoping for federal legislation to overpower this believe this was a solution in search of a problem. What do you say to them? Anyone who tells you there's no voter fraud in Texas is telling you a very big lie. I've got a county commissioner here in East Texas under indictment out on bail for mail ballot fraud. We have 500 or so counts pending against dozens of dozens of defendants around the state right now. East Texas, Rio Grande Valley, urban Texas, all over the place. Of course it happens. Texas has a good election system. We're thankful for that. It can always be better. So Senate Bill 1, common sense reforms. It also makes it easier to vote, extends hours for early voting. It also says if you are in line when the polls close during early voting, you must be allowed to vote. It says if your work schedule doesn't let you off work, your employer has to let you off work to vote. We even provide a way for folks to fix defects in their mail ballots. Under current law, if you have a problem with your mail ballot, it gets thrown out. Now you'll be able to fix it. And we even have a, we'll have a disability, have a portal for folks in, in the disability community and for our overseas service women and men in the military to fix their ballots. So a lot of ways this expands opportunities to vote. It also standardizes those hours around the state make sure those machines are working it gives us a paper trail to do audits making to make sure those machines are working like they're supposed to work there's a lot of things in this bill if you look at it they're common sense reforms the texans are in favor of you know 10 years ago when we did in-person voter id we were told 
you're going to suppress the votes, you're going to decrease turnout. But what happened? Turnout went up. And that's going to happen here again, because when people have confidence their vote's going to count and count accurately, they're going to want to vote. We want people to vote. Everybody wins when more people vote. All right, Senator, with this legislative session behind us, another is ahead. What do you expect with redistricting? As you know, that's another contentious issue. It is. It's always contentious. Every 10 years, we have to redraw these lines because the population changes. As you know, Texas right now has 36 members of the U.S. Congress based in Texas. We're going to get two more. We'll have 38 members of the U.S. House from Texas. So those lines have to be drawn. And also, we'll redraw the lines for the Texas House and the Texas Senate, State Board of Education. So it's a big deal. Uh, the House and Senate committees have already heard testimony, and we're doing even more, doing that remotely for maximum participation. In fact, the day after Labor Day, I'll be back in the Senate chamber with the Senate Redistricting Committee. We'll be taking testimony from Texans all over the state. And we, we expect mid-late September, the governor will call us back in a special session to draw those lines. As you know, we would normally have done those redistricting lines during the regular session this spring, but we didn't have the census data yet. It took a little longer to get this time. So, you know, we're going to follow the law. It's going to be a constitutional process. The maps are going to be fair. Everybody's going to have input. And I think we'll get it done. I think we'll get it done uh, this year before the end of the year in time to have the, the primary elections and everything on schedule. Senator, we so appreciate your time. Thanks so much for being with us this morning. Hey, thank you for having me. Abbott has not yet set a date for the special session to address redistricting. Turning to Washington now, the U.S. completed its withdrawal from Afghanistan last week, ending the 20-year-long war. The federal government evacuated more than 100,000 Americans and allies from the country before the August 31st deadline and says it will continue to get the remaining Americans and supporters out of Afghanistan. Congressman Mark Vesey is a Democrat from Fort Worth, he represents Texas's 33rd congressional district, which runs along Interstate 30 from Fort Worth to Dallas. He discusses Afghanistan and the new laws passed by the Texas legislature with Julian Gromer. Joining us this morning, Congressman Mark Vesey. Thanks so much for being with us, Congressman. Julie Gromer, good to see you all. Let's begin with the withdrawal from Afghanistan. You're on the Armed Services Committee. Should we have left knowing that there are still Americans in Afghanistan? Um, you know, the commitment, even though the August 31st deadline uh, has obviously passed, the commitment is still to work to get out anyone uh, that is remaining. Uh, obviously, uh, the, the administration did everything they could and did a, a good job of making sure that uh, that uh, Americans got out. They gave uh, plenty of notice for uh, people to have the opportunity to get out. Uh, but obviously, for those, for whatever reason it may have been, weren't able to. The commitment is still uh, to get uh, them out. Uh, and so I know that the administration is going to be working around the clock on that. And so uh, I, I applaud them uh, for that. Representative, not only are there Americans in Afghanistan, but interpreters and other supporters of the United States. What can be done to help them? Because we kind of gave them our word, Representative, that, you know, we would be there for them if this situation occurred. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, uh, obviously, you want to put together, uh, you know, some sort of a program that will allow people uh, that were helpful to us during that time period to have the uh, opportunity uh, to leave Afghanistan and uh, the commitment uh, to help anyone that was helpful to the United States is still going to be there. I mean, just because the 
August 31st deadline has passed uh, doesn't mean that this is not something that uh, we're going to be working on around the clock, the administration, uh, members of Congress, uh, others, to make sure uh, that that commitment uh, is made uh, to these individuals that helped the United States uh, at a time uh, that you know was was was, uh, was was a very rough time in America, obviously, particularly when uh, bin Laden uh, was still there in Afghanistan. And so we want to do everything possible to protect them. And uh, the commitment to them is still there. Uh, the 31st deadline, uh, it, you know, doesn't mean anything. The commitment to help them is, is still remains. Is, is this a bad look, though, for America, Representative? The fact that these folks are still over there? Uh, no, I don't believe so. Uh, there is a people don't realize that there are uh, a, lots of different reasons why people could be there. Uh, you know, we want to make sure uh, that uh, when the opportunity presents itself that they're able uh, to leave, particularly people that are U.S. citizens, we want to make sure uh, that they're able to leave. And you remember, some of these are people with dual uh, citizenships. They still have family in Afghanistan. Uh, but uh, when, it's, when it's time to go, we want to make sure uh, that they can get out, that they can come back uh, to America because they are U.S. citizens. Uh, and that commitment, again, is always going to be there. We take that very seriously, particularly being a member of the Armed Services Committee. And it's something we're going to, to, to work on to make sure that it happens. So overall, before we move on, you think the United States made the right decision leaving when we did? Uh, I absolutely think that it was time to leave Afghanistan. It had been a 20-year uh, war, obviously. Um, uh, you know, there was really uh, no sort of, you know, timeline, uh, you know, going back uh, to the Obama administration from when I was in Congress, but even before then, on, 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 on when we could leave. Uh, you know, at some point, uh, we had uh, to leave. I mean, nation building Obviously, it, it, it you know can be very important. It's been successful in the past. Sometimes it hasn't been successful. But to say that we were going to stay there indefinitely certainly was not something that was supported by the American public. And uh, you see overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly in the polls that people uh, support us withdrawing uh, from Afghanistan. Obviously, it's a situation we're going to have to continue to watch uh, because uh, you know an area that large and that vast, a country that area that large and vast. Uh, I, I don't think that the Taliban is going to, uh, you know, be able to govern the, the country completely. I think that there will probably be different factions there, uh, different groups that uh, control power, and it's going to be something that we have to watch. Let's turn now, Congressman, to federal legislation for voting. As you know, the Texas legislature passed a voting bill, and Democrats are appealing to Congress for a bill that would overpower it. We know that many Democrats are supportive of this effort, but does Congress overall have the will to get this done? Yeah, we need to obviously, you know, pass particularly, you know, H.R. Uh, 4, uh, the John Lewis Voting Rights Bill. Uh, you know, we, we need to put states like Texas back in the pre-clearance -pre because this won't be the end. And people need to understand that is that, you know, they're building up uh, to something I think that's even going to be more extreme, going to be, uh, suppress even more votes. Uh, and this is just the beginning. It started off with the voter ID bill. Uh, and then, you know, making a voter ID bill where there were only like five or six accepted forms of ID that you could use. Uh, now they move uh, to this to where now, uh, you know, election officials can no longer send out vote by mail applications uh, to citizens. It used to, you know, citizens used to be able to uh, get vote by mail applications from Tarrant County, for instance, where I live. And now senior citizens don't have that, that luxury 
anymore, you know, uh, and, and, and then the voter ID piece for the vote by mail uh, ballots and the vote by mail applications, I think is also going to be something that is going to be onerous and make it harder, particularly for senior citizens that don't know where their, uh, you know, uh, 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 Social Security card is or they can't find their driver's license because they haven't driven in, in, in years. Uh, they're making it like this on purpose, and we need to uh, put bring preclearance back to states like Texas. Otherwise, you know, they're going to continue to do this, and they're just going to throw their hands up in the air and say, oh, I don't have a racist bone in my body. Yeah. And they're just going to, you know, say silly things like that while trying to make it uh, harder for black and Hispanic people to vote in this state. Okay, Representative, let's turn to Senate Bill 8, which essentially bans most abortions in Texas after six weeks. The Supreme Court didn't get involved. So now it's the law here. What's next federally? What can be done on a federal level? Is Roe v. Wade going to be a state-by-state -state deal now? Uh, I do think that you're going to see the Texas law become the model for other states uh, that want to roll back the rights when it comes to women's reproductive health care. And this is an interesting bill because not only is it a anti-choice bill, it's also a, uh, a bounty hunter bill. Uh, you know, if you assist uh, someone that is trying to get an abortion, whether you're an Uber driver or a next door neighbor or a, a, or a priest or someone in the clergy that has uh, you know confidential rights with uh, individuals, you could be fined ten thousand dollars. You you could be drugged into court and fined ten thousand dollars for doing that. So you know, not only does it make it harder uh, for women in the state to be able to exercise their reproductive uh, rights and and whether or not they're going to uh, you know uh, carry a baby. Uh, but it also puts a bounty on their heads and the heads of other people that may uh, uh, try to help them in a time of need. I think it's a terrible law. I think Republicans should be ashamed about it. I don't think that there's uh, much that can be done on the federal level. I'll be completely honest with you. I think this is going to be decided uh, state by state. Uh, and I think that, uh, that Texas uh, should you know, be ashamed for setting the standard uh, that other states are going to follow that's going to make it harder for women to be able to have uh, uh, abortions and also, uh, you know, put bounties on people's heads that simply just want to be helpful. Congressman Mark VC, thank you so much for joining us with so much going on in Washington, D.C. Thank you, Julie. Thank you, Gromer. Finally, what is the status of mask requirements in Texas schools? Governor Greg Abbott issued an executive order prohibiting public entities from mandating masks but several school districts across the state put requirements in place anyway. So did some larger governing bodies. In our area, Dallas County and the city of Denton both have their own local orders. In late August, a district court judge upheld a temporary restraining order she'd previously granted to Dallas County Judge Clay Jenkins against Abbott's order. Conversely, in Bear County, which includes San Antonio, a judge temporarily struck down the county's mask mandate. So after all these legal opinions, what are the rules? David Cole is a constitutional law attorney with Lynn Pinker, Hurst, and Schwegman, and he's been following the back and forth closely. He breaks it down to Julian Grummer. First of all, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. There's been a lot of confusion on this topic, you know, lawsuits regarding masks, where they can be, where they can't be. Kind of bring us up to speed on where everything stands now. Right now, we're in a kind of a hurry up and wait mode. Last Thursday, the Supreme Court of Texas told us, all right, stop with the emergency applications. We appreciate all this. It's great that people are interested, but 
we're just not going to change and use the way the legal phrase from our status quo we're not going to change that we're not going to take the governor's power away at this stage in these cases what you guys need to do is take your appeals from the temporary injunctions that were entered in dallas and san antonio and i think austin now take those through the intermediate court of appeals and when they're done come back to us with that record from that court and then we'll consider what to do next and in response to that at least the dallas court has expedited the uh, process would usually take a few months they'll be done with the briefing by the end of september and probably have a decision at the end of the month or perhaps early october david what's the legal argument for cities and, and jurisdictions school districts wanting local control on this issue versus the the governor's power outlined in the constitution the practical reason is they've got a bigger problem than other areas in the state do Dallas, Houston, the big cities, the big school districts, they have denser populations, they have a lot more people coming and going, and they've got a bigger problem. So they want more power to deal with it than somebody out in some rural county may have. Uh, so that's the source of the tension. The underlying statute, the Disaster Act, part of our government code, gives power to both county judges and to the governor. It suggests that the governor has the power to break ties and set an overall statewide policy. The, it could be clearer on that, but the better reading of it is that. And so the governor counters by saying, that's great that you want to do those things, but somebody's got to be in charge and uniformity of response is important. And that's the authority that's given to me and only me under the Disaster Act. And I'm going to stick with that. So you have some, some play in the joints in the statute, plus a very a strong feeling in some of these districts and cities that something more needs to be done. And that drives the litigation in slightly different ways, depending on the forum that you're in. So essentially, if a school has a mask mandate and as a parent, you don't want your child to wear a mask. I mean, at this point, can a parent just say it's not the law or if the school yeah, makes, you, if the school you makes put it your a finger law, right on the problem? You put your right on the problem with these things on both the mask mandates and the no mask mandates and the everything else. It's what's so strange to me in hearing these debates and these discussions in every other area of the law, you have a right and you have a remedy. The law tells you what to do and not do. And then it has some consequence. If you don't, if you don't follow that, you get paid money or you have to go to jail or something. But in this mask situation, we have all kinds of rights. People have orders all over the place, but there's never really any sanction for it. The governor's order sets a $1,000 fine, uh, no ability to jail somebody. And generally throughout the state, he's been saying he's not going to enforce the order. It's up to local authorities. Local authorities say they're not going to do it. And then the county order, at least in Dallas, I think the others have followed this lead, generally say they're not enforceable either to try to avoid a direct conflict with the governor's order. And then you carry that over into the school setting and you have the same kind of thing. It's just that we as a society want to have rules. We want laws. We want everybody to know what the law is, but we're very reluctant to impose severe penalties on people for wearing or not wearing a mask. We all remember the hairdresser case from last summer from Dallas that drew so much attention. People just didn't like that outcome. So in theory, a school district could, uh, could kick the kid out of school, make them stay home. They might do that. 
Could they do more than that? Could they try to enlist civil authorities to prosecute someone for encouraging truancy or something by keeping their kid out? Boy, I really doubt that. There's just only so much they can do. Administratively, they can try to discipline the child in some way or put them in an alternative program, but even that's going to draw a lot of attention. It's hard to enforce these things. It just is. So until the state, the nation, gets control of this pandemic, these kind of fights, these kind of spats are going to continue, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we've got the same issue uh, in Texas that everybody else does. We have an emergency act uh, that was written sort of generally because nobody knew what was going to come along. And it was to the extent anybody thought about it, they thought it would be something that began in a county, maybe two, maybe three, and it required the governor to kind of organize things somewhere down the road. You know, you have a hurricane, hits a couple of counties, you need to clear up some freeways, there's the governor. It didn't envision, none of these laws envisioned something like this where the crisis lasts for over a year and it's the entire jurisdiction, it's the entire state. The statute's kind of creaky under that. And there's just gonna be holes in these laws and there's gonna be differences of opinions between states and localities and, and school districts and what have you, and they're gonna fight. But at the end of the day, what are they gonna do? It's, it's really all about moral authority and the high ground of being able to say these are just the rules and hoping you get voluntary compliance out of that because we're just not going to have police going around writing tickets and putting people in jail for this. We just aren't don't seem to be willing to go there as a society. Before we let you get out of here, and I don't mean to scare you with this question, but it's probably too late for it now, but the legislature could clarify the statute, right? Yeah, they've, and they've been doing a bang up job of clarifying things in this session. Uh, no controversy or anything. When they speak, <laughs> that's the end. Uh, and they've tried, right? There have been a couple of bills knocking around Austin in this last session, but uh, they they ran into two problems. They ran into the problem I was just talking about, that no one wants to throw anybody in jail, the remedy problem. But they're trying to find compromise, because they got to find something everybody can live with. It is impossible to compromise these mask things. If you have an opt-in or an opt-out, it's no longer universal masking and it's not masking anymore, it doesn't work. You have to have a lot of people doing it for it to work. And so they tried to reach all these compromises and it just, by its nature, it can't be compromised. So it sort of fell apart and now we're back to the language of the statute and the governor trying to do what he's trying to do. You know, we did see that when the education committee, the public education committee met at the end. At first, there was one there was uh, one bill that got rid of masks, that, that got rid of mandates. There was one that said mandates were okay. And then they came together and said, we can have a mandate, but parents can have an opt out. And I yep. guess the bottom line is, this is just something we're going to have to follow because it's developing as it goes, which is why we'll keep you on speed dial. There you go. It's going to keep changing. And when the Supreme Court rules, I have a feeling they're going to punt it again and let the courts keep fiddling around with it so they don't have to come up with the last word because I'm not sure there is a last word. Thanks to Congressman Mark Vesey, State Senator Brian Hughes, and David Cole for joining the show this week. You can stay up to date on everything Texas politics at NBCDFW.com slash Lone Star Politics. We'll talk to you next week.